Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Dr. Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the IOWC and co-editor of the recently published volume, Animal Trade Histories in the Indian Ocean World, Palgrave 2020. Hi, Renee. Thank you again for having me on the podcast. Uh, and to our listeners, you'll hear, me, hear from me again later uh, on uh, after our guest has spoken. Our guest today is Akash Ondache, a master's candidate for the Queen's University Department of History, who on July 13th successfully defended his master's thesis under the supervision of Drs. Jane Arrington and Andrew Jane Chow. Today, Akash will discuss his thesis, entitled Animal Ascension, Elevation and Debasement Through Human-Animal Associations in English Satire, 1700 to 1820. Throughout his ongoing research, Akash has contributed to the historiographic tradition that has endeavored to illustrate the centrality of animals to the comprehension, critique, and crafting of human societies, with a focus upon the long 18th century. He intends to continue his research by entering a PhD program in 2021, after a year of working with archival sources. So Akash, welcome. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Renee and Philip, and uh, I'm excited to discuss my topic with you. Um, so as a starting point, could you just elaborate on your thesis? So what were some of the key historical studies that laid a foundation for your research? How does your thesis fit within the tradition of animal history? Further, maybe you could explain to our listeners what constitutes such a long 18th century and why you chose to focus on that period. And lastly, why you chose to ground your thesis in a study of satire and what made satire a successful channel slash medium for the distribution of human animal hierarchies. Yeah, all right, um, I'll just pull this up. Um, so as far as secondary sources, my research was significantly inspired by the works of Dr. Keith Thomas. Um, at, at Oxford and uh, especially Man in the Natural World, which he wrote in 1983. Uh, the text, I believe, laid a foundation for many ensuing studies of animals in the uh, early modern period and demonstrated the interconnectivity of a vast array of social and political factors in England from roughly 1500 to 1800 uh, that centered around human-animal relations. Um, in addition to Thomas, uh, Harriet Ritvo's The Animal State, more recently Erica Fudge and Virginia DeJohn Anderson's works have um, provided studies of the early modern period leading into the Victorian era uh, that expand upon the role of animals in our cultural and intellectual history writing. Um, especially uh, Anderson has also expanded the geographic scope uh, of, of that analysis uh, in Creatures Vampire. She brings these, these ideas to the North American theater. Um, so when I decided to research in the current of animal history, I knew I couldn't tackle a time frame as, as large as Thomas, and I uh, finally settled upon the long 18th century. Um, this coinage, the long 18th century, has been used uh, by numerous historians to, kind of, to better encompass the natural progression of culture and politics in England. Um, and some authors, uh, such as Frank O'Gorman, famously, have identified the beginning of the long 18th century as far back as the Glorious Revolution, 1688. For my study, I settled upon 1700 to 1820 uh, for a variety of reasons. 1700, um, first and foremost, because I'm primarily interested in the works of the Scriblerist Club, 
uh, an informal, semi-formal grouping of, of authors and, and academics and thinkers, uh, namely uh, Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift, uh, who formed, uh, who formalized their group in 1714, but whose works predate that year. So I wanted to, to acknowledge those, those, early, those early works. Um, the 1714 is also the year of the Hanoverian succession and, and most of the monarchs with which uh, the satire that I investigate is concerned uh, are the Georges, George I, second and third. Um, finally, I, I decided to call me my research in 1820, both because many of the authors and artists who I investigate have passed away by that date, but also because I, I wanted to make a concerted effort to differentiate animal ascension from the more established historiography of animal rights, uh, which began notably in the 1820s uh, with Richard Martin and the Cruel Treatment to Cattle Act and continued through the founding of the SPCA in 1824 and onwards. So uh, that was my thinking as far as the, the temporal scope. Um, so you'd ask about satire. Um, the 18th century has long been uh, closely identified with satire, uh, as well as caricature, the, the visual counterpart. And the abundance of primary sources made it possible to discern common threads relating to animals uh, quite easily. Uh, and satire, by nature, being a disruptive force that flourishes best with a democratized readership or relatively democratized readership, um, coincided well with uh, the disruption of human-animal uh, hierarchies. And um, so the medium seemed appropriate right away. Then through my research, I, I came to appreciate how the satirists themselves harbored strong views in regards to animal treatment and, and their position, and was fascinated by how they used various species in the ridicule of human individuals in society. I uh, began to compartmentalize the various associations until it became clear that 18th century satire was simultaneously elevating animals while debasing humans. And this led to my formulation of animal ascension. Uh, I think that's, yeah. Thank you for your answer, Akash. Uh, that's very interesting. So I suppose moving more into detail, in the second chapter of your thesis, you elaborate on traditions in the animal vocabulary and discuss how these manifested in the long 18th century. Um, while discussing an interculturalist approach to fable creation, you state that lineages of animal fables should be generally understood as a series of revisions within a transcultural labyrinth of exchanges. So do you mind explaining this statement to our listeners and maybe just discussing the relationship between animal ascension Orientalism and interculturalism in the long 18th century, as well as in its literature and storytelling in general? Of course. Uh, well, my study, uh, my period of study was the 18th century, but many of the traditions uh, with which the satirists I discuss uh, engaged had lineages that were far older. Uh, the animal vocabulary was intended to position some of the key traditions historically, so as to make my subsequent analysis more fluid and um, Fables are, are one of these traditions, perhaps the oldest of those considered. Um, the German Orientalist Max Müller, who I, who I referenced in my thesis, would elaborate on the inter intercultural uh, connections in his lecture and article in 1870 titled On the Migration of Fables, where he notes the various incarnations of fables and the collection of colloquial proverbs and popular thinking and how Working backwards through Lafontaine and Socrates and Aesop, we can notice that there are trends that far extend 
past the uh, the boundaries, the geographical boundaries of, of England or Europe. And um, he specifically notes that the prevalence of animal fables in Sanskrit literature to him suggests that the form may have had their principal source in India. I, in my research, I don't go as far as to suggest a date or location of the inception of each fable. However, I felt it was important to stress the transcultural nature of oral traditions and folklore and not assume a strained Eurocentric geography. Um, many of the 18th century authors were themselves interested in Orientalism uh, as it was understood at the time and some sought to incorporate elements in their works. Byron is well known in this regard, so to are Shelley and Coleridge, while Dryden's fables were noted by Pope himself as uh, for some time inspiring him to write a Persian fable, uh, as he called it. And, um, and of course there was this surge in, in missionary activity and, and, and travel during this time that created new channels for uh, animal fables and animal associations in, uh, in, in foreign texts to make their way to Europe. And it's important to, to value these appropriately um, because they influence the popular European and English imagination to the point where there's cycles of preconceptions that are ultimately informing um, the, act, the activities and, and the views of, of future travelers and future colonists. Um, there were also efforts during this time to formalize the study of these foreign texts and early modern Orientalism in England created such posts as the Sir Thomas Adams uh, professor of Arabic uh, position at Cambridge and um, numerous other uh, translations also came out of this uh, tradition leading into the 18th century, the Jataka tales and the Panchachantara and, uh, and many texts which contained animal allegories. Um, Fables aren't the only tradition of the animal vocabulary that inspired styles and subjects of 18th century satire, um, but they do embody a, a central pillar of animal ascension uh, in that they are didactic and contain a moral education, which, which is quite key. Um, Christian parables, which are another tradition of the animal vocabulary, similarly employ animals as a teaching device. Uh, here we can see a slide of Durer's The Prodigal Son, uh, which um, depicts a well-known Christian parable uh, referencing uh, the debasement that uh, an individual would conceivably uh, relate to um, in regards to animals and, and how this is integral to their ultimate salvation and, and conversion experience. Um, so whether through storytelling, images, or preaching, um, animals are present in a prodigious number of lessons communicated in early modern England. And um, yeah. Uh, by, sorry, this, this other image here is from uh, Francis Barlow's version of Aesop's fables uh, in the 17th century. All right, thank you so much for those answers, Akash. Um, so I think that might conclude my questions. Um, Philip, do you have any questions? Yeah, I have a couple. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Akash, as well. Um, firstly, I'm interested in understanding how certain animal species came to be defined and evaluated by human standards of civility and sociability. Um, and why, how and why were certain species treated differently and afforded varying privileges? Yes, so uh, I stress in my thesis that both humans and animals uh, and human and animal behavior could be subject to praise or criticism, uh, deriving chiefly from conceptions of civility and sociability. For though commentators uh, were generally sensible and mindful of the relative faculties of each species, 
all species can nonetheless be judged to an extent upon their operation within and use towards human society. For animals, this would manifest in a preference for certain species over others, based in part upon such qualities as domesticity, grace, or organization, uh, while for humans, it could result in being vilified uh, or otherwise depreciated to the rank of animals or, in fact, below animals. Um, one of the major works that anchored my study of the concept of civility or civilité was Norbert Elias's The Civilizing Process in 1939. Um, Elias discusses the removal of violence from the scenes of social life and through a fascinating history of table manners and social norms, touches upon many of the ways um, that the treatment of animals in the West and the concept of civility um, were defined by their antithesis and brutishness or, or paganism. Um, so being juxtaposed with brutishness, paganism, or in fact, barbarity or wildness, um, the Europeans crafted their identity and image. And both humans and animals uh, came to be considered in relative fa in fashion based upon these qualifications. Um, while it might seem shocking that animals be deemed civilized and a human be labeled barbarous, uh, this was in fact exactly what occurred time and time again in the 18th century. Um, of course, there was a variability in regards to the expression of civility or sociability dependent on the species in question. Um, anatomy and movements uh, could be considered graceful, for instance, uh, as in the case of the Arabian horse or a purebred dog. Uh, these two species are two of which I consider privileged species in my thesis, uh, meaning they came to be highly valued and were given attentive care and often intended to uh, reflect and project in some manner the qualities of their owner. Um, this privilege does not mean, however, that all members of these species were treated gently, and in fact, many were tortured or killed according to the whims of humans. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that uh, certain that there was a hierarchy uh, of animals separate from the hierarchy of humans and animals. Um, another uh, animal commonly associated with grace and civility were birds. Um, this has been recently presented um, by Peter Salins in his book, 1668, The Year of the Animal in France. Uh, he discusses the use of birds in the courts uh, uh, and the royal menagerie at Versailles. And, uh, and it's a fascinating example of, of learning through animals and, and the intent behind a monarch wanting his subjects and, and wanting his, his courtiers to to, uh, to acknowledge his, his place within the natural order as well. Um, there are similar examples of animals being employed as, as civilizing agents uh, in, in England and, and uh, throughout the 18th century. Uh, Pope and William Hogarth and many of the individuals I studied in this paper had strong attachments to their animal companions and often communicated their belief in uh, species-based relativism while, evalu while evaluating civility. Um, a different kind of praise was heaped upon animals that worked in large numbers uh, or which crafted or created structures that were deemed architectural. Uh, here we speak mainly of insects, for instance, bees and spiders. Um, the bee, or an arachnid, I suppose, in the case of a spider, the, the bee was an extremely popular symbol in the early modern period leading into the 18th century, uh, even being labeled the virtual paradigm of neoclassicism. And uh, it appears in Mandeville's Fables of the Bees, The Grumbling Hive, as well as countless poems and short stories. And uh, the hive and the busy bee uh, came to be two images that were didactically uh, employed to promote 
social cohesion and laboriousness and, and similar virtues that, that could be gleaned from the life of, of these insects. Um, Napoleon, uh, by the turn of the 19th century, would famously adopt the bee as a symbol for France in similar fashion, um, which I discuss in my chapter on animal ambassadors. Um, and spiders, meanwhile, um, in crafting their webs, were often concurrently applauded and vilified. Spider associations might have on occasion suggested a clever mind, but were more often than not used to attack a human subject as conniving or malicious. And they were notably associated with the satirists themselves on, on many occasions. Um, I think I have a few images here. Th these are some images of uh, facial uh, comparison, facial symmetry, uh, physiognomic portraits. Uh, so one of the other traditions in addition to fables within the animal vocabulary is physiognomy, and this is one of the foundational texts by Giambattista della Porta. And on the right here, we have an example by Rowlandson, uh, an 18th century English uh, caricaturist using very similar faciality. Um, and again, here, Charles Lebrun, um, who would uh, lecture throughout Europe on physiognomy, and physiognomic practice was very much uh, an entire ethos and way of thinking, not just in aesthetic, not just in aesthetic style, but as far as caricature was adopted as such. And um, here in regards to what I was just um, discussing about animals in large numbers, on the right we have uh, Crookshank the British Beehive, which is um, kind of this iconic slightly after the, the period of study that, that I'm interested in, but it's nonetheless important, I think, to, um, to be amazed by how in, in the span of, of a century uh, human beings came to be so commonly associated with animals that their entire society and social organization could be viewed through the prism of, of animal society. Um, and, uh, and on the left there's uh, two, uh, two prints, two engravings from uh, Hogarth's The um, Four Stages of Cruelty, which uh, depict uh, the Deve evolution, the uh, the um, the degeneration of the protagonist Tom Nero, who begins his journey by torturing animals in the streets of London and ends it on the anatomy table with a dog kind of sniffing his intestines to kind of show, you know, the uh, the progression of, of where animal cruelty will will ultimately lead to, to barbarity and, and to be treated like a savage. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for that answer. I really appreciate your your identification of how um, the human animal binary doesn't really hold. And this is part of a broader discourse about the blurring of the human nature binary, which is very popular in, um, I suppose, capitalist scene discourse at the moment, as, which seems to get really um, fleshed out here. Um, also, something that's really interesting about the, the animal scene as civilizable or sociable. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's notable how many of these come from the Indian Ocean world and very much um, these sociable or civilizable animals um, or the ones that are perceived as such were very much the ones that were demanded by European royals by, um, to be brought back on ships from the Indian Ocean world for display in royal menageries. This is really, really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much yeah. for um, elucidating that. But so departing from that as well, um, I want to, I wonder about the role of religion. Um, for context to our listeners, um, throughout your thesis, there is significant emphasis on the relationship between religion and animal elevation or animal ascension. So um, would you mind elaborating on the role that religions, both Abrahamic, but also possibly some from the Indian Ocean world as well, Hinduism, and Buddhism, uh, and Islam, 
uh, so Islam being an Abrahamic religion as well, um, had on influencing the philosophies and theories of varying levels of animal autonomy and human debasement. Yeah, that, that, that's a major topic, and I'm not sure I'll, I'll be able to adequately introduce it all, but the, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very important, though, and, and the Abrahamic faiths, to put it broadly, um, and it should, be noted, it should be noted that there's an immense variability of animal practice in, in each faith and each locality, but um, Christianity in particular, um, as the dominant faith in, in England at the time, um, in particular, was appreciated in 18th century England or pardon me, as it was appreciated in 18th, 18th century England, afforded humans with a great many privileges based upon conceptions of human exceptionalism and supremacy. Uh, we've already briefly uh, touched upon Christian parables and, and as, as a teaching device, but in the prelude to the period uh, of the Scriblerians, there's another major discussion being had in regards to animal faculties and the dominion over nature. And this is, of course, to do with uh, Rene Descartes uh, in, in France as, as in the previous century and uh, Michel de Montaigne and their debate over Descartes' concept of the beast machine or the beast machine theory. Um, this was immediately of interest in England and from uh, editions of The Spectator and Joseph Addison's writings on it to, to the scriptures themselves, there's, there's much discussion that, that I try to uh, summarize to some extent in my thesis. Um, Descartes essentially proposed animals worked along the basis of automation and um, were not governed by a discernible reason and thus were in fact much like machines. And Montaigne's more relativist approach acknowledged varying degrees of reason and like the Scriblerians to come stressed that each creature's faculty was honed to, the, to their position uh, within the natural world and to their specific needs and functions. Um, the prevailing Christian conception um, of the great chain of being um, pardon me, right here on the left, we have one of the most common depictions of great chain of being on the right, a, uh, an English example from the 17th century. Um, so the prevailing uh, concept of the great chain of being had ordered humans and animals in a rather static hierarchy. Um, and yet, it, while that's quite clear from simply uh, looking at the image, um, some historians, such as Catherine Chevalot, have remarked that while the great chain of being was a model of hierarchy, it also implied some troubling interconnectivity um, and, and ambiguity. She argues, in fact, that it blurred the distinctions between various orders of creation, for as, if a chain is to remain intact, its links must uh, intersect and overlap. So it's interesting, I think, to um, that by associating humans so definitively above animals, the Christian theory, um, Christian theology and, and theorizations, how that a certain responsibility was required of the former in relation to the latter. Um, it can be argued that the great chain held humans and animals closer than uh, Descartes' uh, early modern formulations. So um, contrasting Christian conceptions of human animal hierarchy with Buddhist or, or Hindu uh, philosophies can be uh, slightly troubling and uh, it's easy to anachronistically assume that contemporary thinkers and audiences were well-versed in these faiths and structures. And while Oriental cultures were studied, and, um, and obviously we discussed how they um, were of great interest, um, it's, um, it's difficult to speak to how well they were understood. And um, definitely some of the more superficial expressions of, of animality um, through faith uh, for instance, theriocephaly, uh, uh, animal headedness, the condition of having an animal head, 
uh, which are commonly depicted in, in among Hindu gods or Egyptian gods, um, would most likely represent a pagan other to Christianity that it sought to distance itself from. Um, though, uh, interestingly, when dealing with the Scriberians and early modern humanists and neoclassical writers, it's important to identify their interest in the Greek tradition and their writings concerning Arcadia and the Dominion of Pan, which contain numerous hybrids and human animals and um, and it's very reminiscent of a kind of uh, of their version of paradise or, or a state of nature um, so there's I, I, I think it's 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 a very complicated uh, web to entangle but uh, there's there's definitely um, an infinite amount of, of various different uh, conceptions of human animal hierarchy based based around religion Thanks for that. Um, a very good summary for a very what was a very broad question. So apologies for for making it. No, no, no. You dealt, you dealt with it very well. So thank you very much for that, um, Akash. In fact, that is, I think, my final question. Renee, do you have another one? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, so thank you, Philip. Um, Akash, in the fifth section of your paper, you elaborate on the animalization of races beyond those within Europe at this time, uh, specifically the animalization and savage narrative that developed towards indigenous peoples within North, North America uh, throughout the age of exploration. So because our center obviously focuses, focuses on the Indian Ocean world and thus the indigenous peoples of Africa, Asia, and Oceania, uh, rather than uh, in North America, I suppose I'm just wondering how um, settler colonialism in general and global cultural exchange in the 18th century intensified the fears of de-civilization de um, and intensified savage narratives as well as how animals figured into the crafting expression and defense of civility that, that, that's a really great question and, and it was an important part of my thesis that i that was actually one of the, the uh, when I began this paper, I, I thought to only focus on, on that angle and, and on cultural exchange in North America and then it kind of expanded outwards. But it's a captivating part of early modern thinking towards animals and it also represents some of the most detrimental animal associations um, that unfortunately in some cases have a continued legacy today. Um, many of the traditions of the animal vocabulary and the associations of the 18th century were brought to the colonies and uh, where they took on new significances. Um, one of the definitions of civility um, that some uh, early modern thinkers such as Henry Holm, Lord Kames discuss um, has to do with the stages of civilization. Uh, in other words, the belief that in a teleological manner, humans have maneuvered their way through logically evolving stages and in the process exemplified certain behavioral patterns. Uh, indigenous peoples in North America, for instance, were commonly theoretically positioned in a lesser stage, uh, state or state of being, and were deemed savage. Um, animal associations helped compound these distinctions. So, for instance, uh, Virginia John Anderson notes a case study of colonial Virginia where, in the mid 17th century, if an indigenous hunter were to kill a wolf, which was considered an undesired animal, uh, their bounty would be a cow, uh, and while the bounty of a non-Indigenous person would simply be payment and currency. The, uh, the Virginia Burgesses believed that this would civilize the Indian and also subsequently introduce into Christianity as the possession of domestic animals fulfilled the scriptural injunction that humans exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth, and uh, this was a responsibility that Indigenous peoples ignored. 
Um, so animals were, were used uh, in, in that sense as a uh, projection of, of civility. Um, now, colonial realities were such that it's rare to see that uh, colonial realities and colonial ambitions perfectly sink. Uh, many compromises arose immediately and animal elevation husbandry, for instance, had to be adapted to the new lands and climate and indigenous technologies were crucial uh, to the survival and successes of colonial ventures. Um, this cultural exchange and reliance and friction uh, scared arbiters of civility and, and authorities and who, uh, who hypothesized that European settler colonists would themselves decivilize uh, far from being far from the metropole. Uh, there was a newfound impetus to protect and to project civility. So uh, an example of protecting civility uh, can be found uh, in, in, in the work of uh, Sarah Hand Meacham, who discusses a 1768 case study of Jonathan Boucher, uh, a very interesting case study of, of a man who loses his dog, uh, ostensibly someone steals his dog, and he, uh, in a backbreaking manner, seeks out a, a, a new English dog uh, um, of the type popular with gentry in England. And he hoped that such an animal would announce his hope for status as an English gentleman, even if he was stuck in provincial Virginia. And uh, he didn't wish to obtain a mongrel type of dog, and as was common in the colony. Um, but instead, he, this breed that he sought would ostensibly reaffirm both his masculinity and, and refinement. Um, so both in terms of protection and projection of civility, they, they take on new meanings in, in the colonial sphere. Um, one of the primary sources that I worked with in particular was the Abbe Reynal's Philosophical and Political History of the Settlements and Trade of the Europeans in the East and West Indies uh, in 1798. And uh, this presents a troubling case study of, of animal associations that suggest the consequences of how animal elevation and human debasement were adopted uh, to the case of indigenous peoples. Uh, there's a uh, painting uh, on screen here by George Catlin, slightly uh, later into the 19th century, but Renal would uh, similarly write of the qualities of bears and speak of their hunting by indigenous peoples as the two being appropriate to one another based on their strength and, and elevation. Um, and then he turns to the case of the beaver, who, like the spiders uh, previously discussed as an architectural animal, he notes, uh, that a beaver possesses all the friendly dispositions fit for society without being subject as we are to the vices and misfortunes attendant upon it. And he describes at length their government uh, in, in terms of a whole body republic, compromise with companies and neighborhoods and, uh, and their social life, which draws tears of admiration and pity from the humane philosopher. Um, subsequently, having implied that indigenous peoples were naturally more inclined to certain animal practice. He notes that if we compare the manners, the police, the industry of the beavers with the wandering life of the savages of Canada, we shall be inclined to admit making allowance for the superiority of man's faculty above those of animals, but the beaver was much further advanced in the arts of social life than his pursuer. So uh, it's a striking example, but it's not too uncommon. And um, I'm sure there's, boundless similar examples to be found in the context of the Indian Ocean world uh, at this time or during the age of discovery and uh, I know that Ruma Chopra in her book Almost Home discusses the case of maroons in Jamaica and how bloodhounds were used to to flush them out uh, of, of difficult terrain and how 
practice of using bloodhounds in that regard was already deemed barbarous and savage in England, but there was this idea that uh, because of the physique and and, and racial uh, status of, of these maroons, it was somehow more appropriate or, or even just uh, acceptable. Um, and uh, the ways in which these associations influenced colonial policies is another topic worth investigating, slightly outside the boundaries of my paper, but for instance, uh, Francis Bond had the uh, would-be Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada in 1847. He, he writes of the assimilation of indigenous peoples in terms of animals. And he notes that one might as well endeavor to persuade the eagle to descend from the lofty region in which he's existed, to live with the fowls in our courtyards, as to prevail upon the red men in North America to become what we call civilized. In short, it is against their nature and they cannot do it. Um, so you know this this has lots to say about the historical legacy uh, in, in regards to race of, of animal associations uh, and how we account for certain uh, atrocities and violences committed to different peoples. Um, there's a quote by Daniel Paul that I always keep in mind um, they can, where he writes, uh, if they can convince themselves that the people their ancestors brutalized, dispossessed, and in many cases exterminated were little more than savage animals, then they don't have to face up to the horrors committed by these ancestors. After all, when you simply put down pests environments, uh, who should complain? So um, yeah, you know, here on, on screen, there's there's an image of uh, a children's book, an ABC for Baby Patriots, and there's earlier 18th century and uh, examples of, of children's books being used in, in, in a similar way, kind of compartmentalizing geography and, and peoples through animals and, and, uh, and being an important colonial tool. Okay, amazing. Well, um, thank you so much, Akash, for presenting to us today and for answering our questions. Um, good luck with your ongoing work. Uh, we will be very much looking forward to hearing about it in the future. Uh, thank you to Philip Gooding for his questions today. And thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.